1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Nicole Bourbonnet. She's the author of Birth Control in the Decolonizing Caribbean, published in 2016 by Cambridge University Press. This book is a wide-ranging examination of the implementation of birth control in the British Caribbean. Bourbonnet focuses on Bermuda, Barbados, Jamaica, and Trinidad to understand the ways that a range of actors, including colonial officials, feminist reformers and activists, and working class women, all shaped policies as well as practices related to control over reproductive lives. She tells these complex stories with the nuance and sense of humanity they warrant. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Nicole. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, we're going to start by talking a little bit about your own trajectory and your own sort of path towards becoming a historian of the Caribbean. But um, in the interest of full disclosure, I want to just tell our listeners that we've known each other for a long time, (laughs) and I'm really just so delighted to be having this conversation with you. Um, And so I'll also say that when I first met you, even when you were an undergraduate, you had a kind of very focused commitment to studying the Caribbean which is pretty unusual in a place like Vancouver, British Columbia. So can you please tell us how how, it, how you came to be a historian of the Caribbean?
0: Sure yeah it's it's not obvious. I grew up in a small town in rural Manitoba as you know which is pretty distant from the Caribbean in a lot of ways. Um, but when I was 18 I did one of these volunteer abroad programs. Uh, you know one of these kind of when you're 18 and you think you're going to save the world and i ended up in guyana now as you might have guessed i didn't save the world um, <laughs> i mostly came away from the experience realizing how naive i was and and how ignorant as well of the, about the caribbean uh maybe about life in general but uh, particularly about the caribbean and i came back to university in, in vancouver really just so fascinated by Caribbean history. I really, the more I learned about it, the more I kind of delved into it, the more interesting I found it kind of as a, as a region, but also as a place where so much of global history happened to, you know, as this kind of crossroads of global history. And so, yeah, I just kind of kept taking it in my courses, even if it wasn't a course about the Caribbean, I would end up writing a paper about the Caribbean somehow. Uh, which was also fostered, obviously, by having some great professors of the Caribbean.
1: So um, the book itself covers debates and the implementation, sorry, of birth control policies in the British Caribbean, right? So um, apart from the fact that we really needed a book like this, and it's kind of astonishing that one hadn't been written, yeah, um, how did you get the idea for it?
0: Yeah, so that was very... um random, I guess. I was interested in the Caribbean. And actually, I don't know if you remember this, but one summer I was working for you as a research assistant, Mm -hmm. and you were having me look at microfilm of the Jamaica Gleaner. Uh, in the yeah. years 1938, 1939 and I was looking for you for articles about the radio but what I kept finding was articles about birth control. <laughs> so I I did find some radio stuff. It wasn't a total loss but you did. You did. Um, <laughs> but what really stood out to me was like every day there was an article about birth control uh, and this is in 1938, 1939. Um, I went on to write my master's about this, and there was something like 360 or, or 380 articles just in that one year alone on birth control. And so I was really struck by this, like, why are people talking about birth control in Jamaica in 1938? What does that even mean? I mean, what are birth control methods in 1938? Uh, and how did this play into the obviously uh he- you know, heated tensions around labor, around nationalism, um, all of this kind of activism that was happening in these same years, 1938 being the era of a major labor rebellion in Jamaica. So that was kind of my initial interest, it pulled me into the particular story of birth control, uh, and then kind of went on from there. I decided to expand it to look at other islands because they kept coming up in the sources on Jamaica. So they were talking about what was going on in Bermuda, what was going on in Barbados uh, and Trinidad. And so I came to see the story as, as interconnected.
1: So you do this really brilliant thing at the beginning of the book. You start with a letter from Rose Gordon in Jamaica, and she says she's given birth 14 times Lost three children, and that she was, quote, a slave to childbearing, and also that she wanted to, quote, be free of this terrible strain. And then a few pages in, you drop kind of a bomb, which is that you have in your possession or you looked at 512 letters like this from women, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to get to all of those later. But um, I actually want to ask you about the structure of the book because. Um, what happens is that you, you sort of set the stage with these women and this hint of these letters, but then you, go, you sort of pull back to debates among colonial officials, birth control activists, local newspapers, and all kinds of other actors. And the letters and the women really are at the heart of the third chapter. So we don't really get to them until the third chapter. And it's a kind of a, I was thinking about that. that It's kind of, you build this sort of suspense, right? In terms of, okay, like where are these women and what are they going to think about all of these debates, right? So so before we get to actually the story, I would love to hear you talk about how you decided to structure the book that way
0: yeah i think you know i i thought about that actually i remember one of the peer reviewers suggested that i move that section um about the women earlier in the book but for me i felt that i needed to first explain all how that clinic came to be in the first place right so before we can understand what women were doing there what they expected from the clinic what they were going to get at the clinic who they were going to encounter there i felt that first i needed to explain why this clinic opened the politics around it and the particular actors who were involved, um, you know, the secretary of the clinic, the nurses, so that we could understand a bit that interaction. And it also, I think the the structure of the book also follows the way that I encountered the story as well. So when I started, I started obviously with the newspapers, as I mentioned, I was looking at legislative debates. I was looking at, um, You know editorials uh, pamphlets things that were published and it was only about i don't know halfway through my first research trip that i actually came across the letters and up until that point i had really thought i was just going to tell a story about the politics of birth control right and about the discourses around it and how it kind of intersected with nationalism colonialism that kind of thing and then when i found the letters i was like oh okay there's this whole other story here. There's this social history of birth control. There's uh, you know, this material experience of birth control. And then I realized that that was a huge part of the story and I wanted to tell that part too. So yeah, I think it was partly just following my own path and then partly I felt that it, it needed to be explained before we could understand the women's engagement um, with the clinic itself.
1: Yeah. So let's so let's get into sort of the opening of the book with the 1930s um, and that setting. And I wonder if you can kind of paint a picture for us of how uh, different groups fell on the question of birth control. I mean, there were a lot of really fascinating debates that you trace and kind of some surprising positions that people took. So I wonder if you could sort of sketch that out for us a little bit.
0: Sure. So on the one hand, as, as we might expect, uh, the colonial office and uh, many of the white elites on the islands of the Caribbean ac- across the different islands latch on pretty quickly to neo-Malthusian and eugenic discourses of birth control. Right. So uh, the argument that the reason that the Caribbean is poor, the reason why there's this uh, you know, discontent is because there's just too many people. The islands are overpopulated and particularly there's too many of the wrong people, which is, you know, working class, uh, obviously racialized understanding of who should and should not be born. So that discourse is, is there immediately um, and feeding into, you know, larger race class inequalities. Then there's also uh, a discourse among kind of modernizing nationalists. Um, both leaders like Norman Manley in Jamaica, uh, Granley Adams in Barbados, uh, Eric Williams in Trinidad, but also among public health professionals, among uh, middle, middle-class actors with different kind of political leanings who are arguing that Control is not, you know, that overpopulation is not the only problem or necessarily even the main problem, but that helping people to have smaller families would be beneficial for development for some of the plans that these actors have for a future uh, that hopefully will not be a colonial future, right? So it becomes kind of connected to these nationalist aspirations and to kind of modernizing discourse. Then we have, on the other hand, uh, some religious opposition among uh, religious leaders, both, both Catholic and Anglican, although Anglican churches kind of officially by that period have accepted family planning uh, in certain cases, you know, within marriage. But in the Caribbean, a lot of Anglican leaders came out against it because they argued that it was a different case in the Caribbean because so many children were being born out of marriage. So they argued that uh, in this context, it would not be appropriate to to promote birth control. So there's that religious opposition. And then there's also opposition among some um, black nationalist groups, particularly among some members of the Universal Negro Improvement Association or the UNIA. Um, There's an argument that Marcus Garvey, although um, deceased at this point, would not have supported birth control, uh, that he believed... You know that there that it was a um, a weapon against the poor, against the black population. Of course, you know you don't have to look far to find discourses like that, right? Because there that eugenic, neo malthusian discourse is being promoted in newspapers and and legislative debates quite openly. So there's something there. Um, but then what I found interesting is when you dive a bit closer into the UNIA debates and the debates among. Uh, the Black community in the Caribbean, is that there's also these voices saying, okay, yes, of course we're against compulsory measures, we're against these kind of eugenic discourses and these eugenic um, plans, but voluntary birth control could in fact be very helpful to people as individuals. Uh, And some actors, uh, particularly some of the women within the UNIA, make the argument that it's also a matter of women's rights. Um, And this is a minority discourse within the region in the 1930s, 1940s. Obviously, it becomes prevalent later in the region and globally that birth control is a women's right. But uh, there are some actors making this case early on. And there's also a couple of surprising, I would say, alliances. So at one point, point, uh, the Bermuda government Releases this report on unemployment where they suggest the compulsory sterilization of large swaths of the population, um, people with mental illness, um, people who have had illegitimate children. And both the Afro Bermudian community. And a group of suffragists, mostly dominated by white elite women, mobilize against this, along with religious leaders and along with some other actors to oppose it, and are successful in preventing it from being passed. Uh, Similar proposals also are are not passed in, in Barbados and Jamaica. So on the one hand, it is, you know, a lot of the positions fall along kind of race, class, gender lines that you would expect. But then there's also this kind of broader complexity to to the way people fall on this issue uh and and where they come out of come out in the debates
1: yeah i want to get back to this question of uh, I, I was really fascinated by um some of these women like Mamie aiken for example um and i want to get back to them but for, but actually first um Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the geography here because you start with Bermuda and Bermuda was actually one of the first places to get a birth control clinic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so how did that, why? And also, you know, Bermuda, as you point out, isn't always thought of as part of the Caribbean. So um, I think we need to talk about Bermuda a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, it was, I decided to include Bermuda, it is kind of, you know, some people see Bermuda as part of the Caribbean, some people don't, uh, for a variety of different reasons. I decided that Bermuda was really important to this story because it kept coming up in my other sources. So uh, usually as either a example of kind of racial eugenics run amok, or as an example of, you know, what islands could be doing in order to to limit families. So what Bermuda meant in the Caribbean when it came to birth control really depended on what your position was on birth control. Uh, But for example, there are protests against this this unemployment report that I mentioned. There are protests against that that run to New York, Caribbean communities in New York, uh, Boston, and all the way down to Guyana. So this information about what's going on in Bermuda is important to the story and continues to be cited many, many years later, uh, even long after. Now, part of the reason, I mean, Bermuda is one of the first places in the Caribbean, or it is the first place in the Caribbean that I know of to have a birth control clinic. It's also one of the first places in the world to have one that was supported with government funding. Uh, It's in 1934, so it's really early, or 1936, sorry. it's it's really quite early, and part of the reason this happens in Bermuda versus in other places is because uh, at this time, although Bermuda is a, a colony of the UK, it's has a lot more independence to act locally uh, because of its unique history, um, because largely because it had a much larger white population, it was almost like in between a settler colony and uh, and a Caribbean colonies. So it has this kind of unique unique structure that allows the government to act a bit more quickly uh, in this field. Whereas in the other Caribbean islands, any kind of attempts to get funding for birth control from different associations, different actors who are organizing clinics is, is very quickly shut down uh, by both local actors and by the colonial office.
1: So, um, what about the other li- islands? You have Barbados, Jamaica, and Trinidad. What are, how did you choose those and what are the differences between them?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of differences between them. Of course, it's always hard when you do a comparative study to, you know, to not end up kind of washing over some of the differences. Uh, Jamaica, obviously... Uh, one of the most populated islands, uh, kind of weighs heavily, you know, in, in the colonial, in the mind of the colonial office. Kind of a lot of the time, things that are happening in Jamaica then determine policy in other areas in this period. Very strong kind of nationalist labor movements in these years. Uh, Barbados was seen as a particular concern because it was the mo- one of the most densely populated islands. Uh, so a lot of this overpopulation discourse really. Uh, starts earliest in, in Barbados and, and becomes really strong. And Trinidad um, obviously is, is distinct through its different kind of population dynamics. So having a large uh, population of East Indians uh, who came over after, after slavery ended uh, f- uh, through indenture, So they're all really different islands. I mean, the reason I picked them is is really just because they were the places that seemed to move the most quickly in terms of establishing clinics. First in Bermuda, then in Jamaica, and then in the 1950s in Barbados and Trinidad. I actually found out quite a bit later that there was also a clinic in Bahamas in, I think, 1955 or somewhere around that. Uh, unfortunately too late to include that story in the book, but I think it would be really interesting. Apparently it opened and then closed down very quickly, like within a year or something uh, due to opposition. And also, I, I mean, I would have to confirm this, but from the little source that I had, because apparently one of the clinic nurses got pregnant, which is, you know, never a good, never a good look when you open a birth control clinic. So, um, Yeah, so there's, there's probably other stories there. Um, You know, maybe there are other false starts in other areas that just didn't attract my attention, but it was really driven by the story of birth control above all.
1: I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about this book and was seems really hard to pull off, which you do really well. Um, is that it's not just a comparison, right? You don't just sort of sit there and put each island side by side, but you also show how many networks and connections there were between them all, right? So a lot of these activists were moving around and the the newspapers moved around and there was was a sense of kind of things, ideas, people, um, and even objects kind of circulating around. And and I guess... um, uh one of the things that seems to have been moving around a lot were were these women who traveled or whose um whose writings were kind of circulating in in different circles and things like that so um i want to talk about some of these women and these women who we kind of see over and over again who pop up not just um sort of as sources but also as sources of sources for instance i think it was um wasn't it in the archives of one of these women that you found all of these letters Um, May Farquharson, maybe, Mm -hmm. Um, and then also Mamie Aiken. And so, um, I want to hear you talk more about these women. How how do we how does the historiography look different if we sort of take their perspective?
0: Yeah. So uh, May Farquharson, that was a huge source collection for me. She was the secretary of the Jamaica Birth Control League. which later became the Jamaica Family Planning Association. And in reality, she was the one who kind of did most of the organization of the clinic. There was a board of directors, but she was the person kind of on the ground. I think there's something like 10 boxes of hers at the Jamaica archives. And it was one of those things where, I mean, this never happens. I, I, shouldn't, I never tell my grad students about this because it's not fair, but I literally arrived and the first binder I opened up at the Jamaica archives was a list of all of her collection, uh, just, you know, an entire binder of documents on birth control. And I was like, oh, well, is this how archival research works? Great. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work that way normally. <laughs> but um, yeah, so she has, uh, she basically kept, I think, every letter she received and copies of every letter she wrote. So, uh, and also clinic records, um, you know, balance sheets, shopping lists, everything. So it was an incredible uh, collection to work with. Um, Mimi Aiken is uh, much harder to track down. Uh, obviously, they have completely different uh, profiles, right? So Mayfarku Guharson was the daughter of a uh, Shigar estate owner. She's a very wealthy, elite white woman, tons of resources, um, and, you know, uh, pr- the privilege of kind of having her collection taken by the archives. Mimi Aiken was someone whose traces I kind of found mostly through looking in in newspaper articles, um, kind of tracking her down through that. There's also been some great stuff written about her um, by scholars of African-American history because she lived in the United States for a while. And so you can see that she does circulate quite a bit uh, between the US. Uh, She spent some time in uh, Central America Uh, before she ends up in Jamaica. And even then she kind of goes back at one point to the U.S. and learns more about birth control, visits birth control clinics, et cetera. Um, But she's not as involved involved in the daily work of the clinic. There it's more um, run by Maeve argu in in the Jamaican case, but as in, in other cases of the other clinics as well, it's really doctors and nurses who are doing most of the work. Right. So uh, usually a woman doctor in most of these clinics um, and a whole bunch of nurses who themselves usually come from working or middle class backgrounds. And so I do think that it really shifts to look at their papers and to look at the work uh, being done by these women in the clinics shifts it from being a story just about, you know, neo-Malthusian eugenic politics to being also a story about, you know, nurses, some of whom themselves had came from large families and were driven by the desire to help women like their mothers. Uh, You know, this is this kind of whole other element of the story that I think would have been totally lost if I had just focused on the the political arena.
1: Yeah, I, I wanted to talk more about the nurses because I do think that they're fascinating. I don't know if you have one or two in particular that you remember, but I, it struck me that they are really t- translators in so many ways, right? Um, about knowledge and about bodies and about sort of, okay, let's take this, you know, whatever whatever it is that the that the that the colonial officials or the, you know, the sort of more middle-class elite are throwing at us and let's, how, how do we actually implement this on the ground and and make sure it's the best thing possible for the women that that we're serving so i don't know if, if you have more sort of specific nurses or or how you thought about nurses when you were writing when you were writing this
0: yeah there's uh, there was one stack of letters in particular between nurse campbell and uh, i i don't even know her first name to be honest it only just was referred to as Nurse Campbell, but Nurse Campbell and, and May Farquharson uh, in in May Farquharson's collection, and it's really interesting because okay, May herself is a very complicated character to say the least. Uh, And she definitely has some eugenicists, some neo-Malthusian kind of tendencies to her. She kind of vacillates between putting forward this kind of public health, social welfare approach, but also gets very easily frustrated, particularly when birth control doesn't kind of immediately catch on. And Nurse Campbell kind of in this correspondence is constantly writing to her like, look, okay, it's gonna take a while, you know, people are coming from these backgrounds she's trying to kind of defend the women that that are coming to the clinics and and help them with some of their problems but then also sometimes in the records she's kind of trying to negotiate for better salaries as well so a couple of times she threatens to quit or or does actually quit and and takes up a job somewhere else Um, she i from the little bit of background i could find on her she also was involved in some labor movements and things like that. So she has her own story. Um, I wish that I had better sources on that. And I think if I, you know, if I went back and did the book over again, I would have really tried to do an oral history project with nurses who were involved, at least in some of the later years of these clinics, because I think there is really uh, a deeper story there about the role of nurses and the way that they navigated, you know, this, this intermediary position
1: yeah they seem to be they're sort of between you know male doctors often and and patients and they're 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 really fascinating i think um so okay so we move towards the 1940s and the moine commission and you make a pretty good case that that kind of shifts the terrain um a great deal so i wonder if you can um if you can sort of talk about that and what what what, what difference did the moine commission make and how did that um change change things with regards to birth control
0: i think the Moyne commission so this was the kind of investigation launched by the colonial office after the labor rebellions in the caribbean to kind of find out what was the cause of the unrest um, and why why what could be done about it and I'm not sure that the Moyne Commission really changed so much in the debates within the Caribbean, but it definitely led to a colonial office obsession with overpopulation. I, I don't even know how else to put it. I went to the yeah. colonial archives in Kew and there were like 50 folders on overpopulation and birth control in the Caribbean, uh, which is even more surprising when you find out that they didn't actually do any, uh, very much uh, at all about birth control in the Caribbean. So they just wrote a lot of memos and a lot of (laughs) pamphlets that never got published and, you know, came up with these schemes of what they were going to do. But really, it it comes out first, I think most strongly in, in the Moyne Commission, where there's some of the commissioners when they're interviewing, you know, local people across the Caribbean are really like badgering them about overpopulation. So some of them will be talking about something and they'll, the commissioner will interrupt them and say, well, but do you think it's okay to be asking for these things when you're having so many children and fertility rates are out of control you know (laughs) so they're really aggressive some of them are really aggressive about it and then a few colonial officials afterwards make this almost like their personal mandate within the colonial office to try and get some support for intervening providing birth control or encouraging local governments uh, to to get involved. but really the farthest that they go is at one point they send around a circular um, encouraging you know local governments to take some action and they get mostly negative responses and they admit in the end that it was kind of totally pointless uh, to send this circular. The other thing that they do is to provide some funding for fertility studies. Um, particularly the Jamaica Family Life Project, which was headed by American demographer Jane Mayon Stykos, And this does have some effect. Actually, it has a stronger effect, I would say, in the long run, because the studies basically showed that many Jamaican women did want to have less children, you know, were open to birth control. And this, in the late 1950s ends up having an effect on political debates and political opportunities but the colonial office wasn't very happy with it Uh, they they didn't feel that they had enough control over this study they didn't really have much control at all uh, and they didn't feel that it was really strong enough in its proposals so um yeah so I guess the Moyne Commission kind of starts that really powerful discourse within the colonial office of overpopulation being the problem but
1: they don't actually do much in the end. (laughs) I mean, I think that 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 sort of um, leads to, I think it sort of highlights the way that you framed it in the chapter itself. Um, And I'm just going to read... A little quote, It's you say colonial. the colonial office's approach to birth control highlights both resistance to the colonial state's interventionism and disappointment with its ultimate failure to deliver on its civilizing mission. So basically they are getting more and more kind of ham-fisted is what you're arguing. They can't do anything right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it fits with the larger right after the Moyne Commission and in the 1940s, they launched this development and welfare program that's supposed to address all these problems and maybe hedge off you know, the independence movements uh, but of course it, it doesn't i mean it's too little too late right to kind of try and invest in social welfare and health at the at the in the dying days of, of empire and, uh, and birth control kind of follows that trajectory as well right it's um yeah it, it also just kind of
1: dies out right Um, so finally we get to the letters in chapter three. So you've set all of the, like, you've really set us up well to appreciate, um, the, the weight and the importance of these letters. And, um, as you mentioned, I mean, these really are every dissertator's dream, right? Just kind of like amazing, amazing source. Um, and so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about them. And also, I mean, you, you first read them, some years ago, right? So which ones do, are there any that you really remember that stand out to you that, that you, you know, you think you're, you're going to not forget?
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, honestly, it was really hard to read the letters. I mean, some of them are kind of optimistic and, you know, we've just gotten married and we want to fr- not have, you know, children so quickly, that kind of thing. Uh, but most of them were really in, really quite intense. I mean, there women talking about having a child every year. Um, there's women who talk about feeling completely hopeless, who talk about feeling like they can't li- go on, they can't live anymore, you know. Um, the woman, I mean, the woman, as you mentioned, that I start with talks about being a slave to childbearing, which especially in the context of the Caribbean, With the history of slavery, it just seems so powerful to me to to use that language. Uh, There's also women who talk about having had uh, who are already pregnant and are asking for something to to end or to interrupt the pregnancy. I think they all really the sum total of them all really, uh, were so intense to read and really obviously this wasn't everybody's experience. There are, these are 500 letters out of, you know, millions of women in the Caribbean. So, uh, you know, these are often the kind of most desperate cases who would come to the, to the clinic, you know, women, it was women on average who were older, had more children, um, you know, had had them quicker, but I think it was still really gave you a sense of the gravity of reproduct- reproduction mm-hmm. in this period. Um, the intensity of trying to yeah trying to have a family but uh but not not so quickly as one put it one woman i remember one letter the woman said i'd like to have my lot you know my the amount of children i'm supposed to have but not so quickly right so she manages to kind of still hold on to kind of cultural ideals of of childbearing but make the point that let's just like slow it down a little bit this is a bit intense
1: so, how would you? I mean, if we're sort of looking back now on these on these clinics, um, I'm wondering how we would talk about in terms of you know, did they work, right? So, on the one hand, it seemed it's very clear that what they offered was um, a sense of control and um, empowerment to a certain t- sense to these women who actually really wanted and asked for. Um, birth control. But on the other hand, you do point out that often, you know, the methods they used didn't work very well or they were still in experimental phases or, you know, all kinds of things happened, right? So so the the bigger picture of sort of, you know, how would you assess how would you assess the role of these clinics in the end?
0: Yeah, I think even the clinics themselves at the time saw themselves as kind of pilot. Projects, you know, um, a space to start giving women uh, methods and kind of show that there was demand. I think everybody recognized that one clinic in one town was not going to, you know, make a big change overall uh, in women's lives. And I think from the limited amount that you can tell from reading these sources or some of the other records I had from other clinics. You can definitely see that there are some women who find it you know really exciting and it it meets their needs um, and you know they're successful using uh, the diaphragm for example but much more often is a story of disappointment and of uh ultimately i I think in most of the clinics like half the women never came back even once (laughs) maybe uh you know to get more supplies Um, There was a lot of failures with the methods. I mean, they were not great methods, to be honest. I mean, I think about what involved, I mean, there were like, you know, spermicidal foams and powders that would burst out of their tubes in hot weather and, um, you know, these diaphragms that you had to like fit perfectly over your, over your cervix somehow. And then you'd leave it in overnight and then you'd have to hang it up the next day. And, you know, where did you hang your diaphragm if you lived in a (laughs) small house? You know, I I just, the practicalities of it were pretty complicated. And sometimes the, you know, nurses and doctors weren't particularly sympathetic. You know, as I was saying, May Farquharson, for example, would get so frustrated with people who couldn't use these methods um but when i look at them i'm like i wouldn't be able to use those methods that seems very complicated um and unpleasant you know some of them had smells one of them i remember there was some complaints in the clinic in bermuda because the volpar paste one of the paste was labeled poison on the label so i mean you know you can kind of understand why people were not necessarily that satisfied um yeah. So I, I think yeah overall it, it wasn't usually the solution that it was it was sometimes um, projected as right uh, yeah. But,
1: yeah I mean I wonder actually this question just um just popped up in my mind as we were talking about these different kinds of methods and did you come across anything in your sources about you know alternative methods that were not kind of coming from Western medicine and those kinds of things or, you know, herbal practices that people had been using for many years and things like that?
0: Yes. Um, So mostly in the case of of abortifacients, I think that's how you say that word. (laughs) Um, So methods that would be aimed at interrupting a pregnancy or as, or as it was often kind of seen at the time as bringing on a delayed period, right? So mm-hmm. there's a bit of a, um, it, you know, it, people often don't talk about it in in that period as uh, bringing about an abortion, but rather just as bringing on a period that was late. Uh, and of course, in the, in the kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, people aren't getting pregnancy tests after one missed period, you know, there aren't no mm-hmm. pregnancy tests. So you don't really know you're pregnant uh, often until you really start to show kind of physical signs. So this pr- created that little bit of space to, you know, bring on a a, a period as a as a birth control method, uh, even if we would now probably consider that an abortion method. But there are some Evidence of using women using these types of methods, different herbs. I can't remember them exactly, but I think Penny Royal, which is also something that in other contexts was used. Um, there's also, I remember the birth control, one of the birth control clinics in Barbados talks about how women would say they'd had a slip, which would either mean that they kind of slipped and fell and provoked an abortion or slipped something into. The uterus to provoke an abortion, and this is, I mean, common to all over the world, right? Any any country you go to in this period is going to have different methods, physical uh, inserting things into uterus or um, herbal to pro- to provoke abortions. Um, some of, for example. Uh, uh, some of the works on slavery have shown how women carried on methods from Africa to the Caribbean that they used in in provoking abortions. So, yeah, so there are definitely those kinds of methods available. And some of the letters sort of speak to that. So they'll say, OK, I'm pregnant. Could you send me something to bring on, or to prevent this one from developing or something mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's obviously this knowledge of it. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, you wrap the book up by zooming, kind of zooming back out, right? And it brings in, you bring in USAID um, and really um, what you represent as a kind of general and and more broad acceptance and practice of birth control. There's still issues and controversies, but really it seems to be something that more and more people have access to and almost take for granted. And what's interesting is that you've really unpacked and really shown the process and the messiness and the contingency um, of that. Right, and the the way in which uh, people may take it for granted now, but there was a whole lot of stuff that happened beforehand. So, um, I wonder if you can talk about what you think this particular perspective adds and contributes to the historiography of decolonization.
0: Sure. I mean, I think on on the one hand, it shows that decolonization was also about these kinds of struggles, right? So it was about labor, it was about class, about race, about global inequality, but it was also about gender and it was about how families are made and and what kind of families um, were needed for, mm-hmm. you know, nation states, for, for independence. So there is this kind of I think it, it sort of shows the gendered politics of decolonization and how those intersected with race and, and class debates as well. But it also shows um, that decolonization did matter. I don't, I don't know if that's a weird thing to say, but I feel like there's often a lot of critiques of like, okay, there was still all these problems afterwards. But mm-hmm. at least in the case of the Caribbean, in the case of birth control, it, it, I don't think it ever would have happened under... British colonial rule, you know, there was just, there was that, um, you know, it wasn't democratic, there wasn't the possibility for these different actors to be part of government so that could then push for birth control, right? I mean, a lot of the reason why birth control comes to be accepted as government policy in the Caribbean is because these nurses, doctors, uh, social workers end up becoming part of governments or have links to people in government that can then kind of push forward these policies uh, sometimes even against powerful opposition from church leaders for example uh, Eric Williams el- election for ex- in Trinidad in uh, 1956 for example is a I think it's 1956 I'm really bad with dates for a historian but, <laughs> um, is a really is a really good example because the Catholic Church really mobilizes strongly against him Um because, of, for many reasons, but partly because he ha- had been on record as supporting birth control, but he wins, you know, uh, and therefore there is this space to to promote those kinds of policies. So yeah, I guess that's kind of how it intersects with decolonization in a few different ways.
1: Yeah, and, and theoretically you make a really um, sort of elegant point that Uh, the discourse of birth control was both coercive and offered openings for people. And that's very persuasive sort of throughout the book. But then you um, sort of towards the end, um, there's a kind of warning <laughs> um, about, about sort of, you know, the future of all of this. And you, you say, until internal race and class disparities and the unequal position of the Caribbean islands in the world system are fully addressed, reproductive politics will remain a potential flashpoint in the region. So sort of looking back and then looking forward, obviously, we have not um, solved the race and class disparities or probably the position of the Caribbean islands in the world system. So so where do we stand today with these kinds of issues?
0: Yeah, I mean, listening to you say that sentence, that could probably be said of anywhere in the world as we <laughs> can, can obviously see, you know, I mean, the um, abortion law context in the US right now, right? Like reproductive, yeah. reproduction is just always this potential political tool, this political weapon, because it touches, I I think, because it touches on this extremely intimate aspect of people's lives, right? It's easy to get passionate about one way or another, because it's about reproduction as a, you know, family, as a species. Um, So it's always kind of there. I think, one of the kind of main points I wanted to make in the conclusion is that it it also just takes so many different levels to ensure that something is empowering and not coercive, right? On the one hand, it takes, you know, funders and governments that don't set targets that lead to, you know, unethical practice. It also takes doctors and nurses who really give free choice, who are really about their patients' interests rather than about, you know what they think is best for the patient whether they should use this method or not and it takes women having the resources and the networks to really assert themselves and, and what they want and at all of these different levels things can go one way or another and so i think as much as you know we should rightly celebrate the way that discourse around reproduction has changed in many cases uh there's also this feeling that unless that's embraced at every level and, and there's kind of this need for constant vigilance, I think, at every level to ensure that that's what the commitment is and it can always go back. It can always get retangled in all of these other issues.
1: So I've taken up lots of your time. I've One last question, and it's a question that I love to ask people because I'm always, like, beautifully surprised. So what, what are you working on next? What's your new project?
0: Well, I'm still obsessed with family planning so, <laughs> uh, and this this movement. Um, so I, I talk a little bit in the book about some of the international advocates who came to the Caribbean uh, to kind of get involved in local movements. Uh, Margaret Sanger from the U.S., Edith Hall-Martin from the U.K., and then later uh, Naomi Thomas uh, from the U.S. and, and kind of and also about how the Caribbean gets involved in international organizations like the International Planned Parenthood Federation, and I was very interested about you know what are these people doing in the Caribbean, and and what are the Caribbean actors getting out of these relationships with international activists, and so for my next book, I'm kind of shifting from looking you know at, at the Caribbean to looking at these international actors um, in themselves as a kind of cohort. So the International Planned Parenthood Federation, the Pathfinder Fund, the Population Council, all these different organizations that arise uh, in the mid 50s and become these, that kind of build these networks, fund research, support local activists in different ways. And so I'm kind of looking at how these actors who were often, you know, these organizations who are often composed of uh, doctors, nurses, social workers, that kind of strata of of intermediary actors and how they they kind of visualized this global movement in different ways, how they reacted to kind of local challenges and how they dealt with the suddenly kind of dramatic rise in funding for family planning in the mid 60s onwards uh, with USAID and other organizations or other kind of major donors getting involved. So really looking at this global family planning movement, how people tried to kind of spread, they called it the gospel of family planning uh, around the world and what actually happened on the, in, in practice with that, right? So yes, the politics, but also again, what happened when you actually went to some other country and tried to talk about birth control you know, to, to people? What were the reactions? What were the material realities of that movement?
1: I can't wait to read that book. <laughs> <Thank you laughs> I'm so trying much. to write it right now. <laughs>
0: um,
1: well, good luck with that. And, um, and thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed talking about this to you. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.